Chapter 4, verse 1. We are introduced to the third cycle. The Israelites again did evil in Yahweh's sight after Ehud's death, and Yahweh turned them over to King Jabin of Canaan, who ruled in Hazor. The general of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harashath Hagiam, and the Israelites cried out for help to Yahweh because Sisera had 900 chariots with iron rimmed wheels, and he cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. So the oppression gets two years longer, but the point is it's longer. Before the enemy was way up in the north, then it became the next door neighbor, now it's within the Canaanites. And he is oppressing up in this region of West Manasseh. Barak is all the way up there in Naphtali. He is oppressing North Israel. And we know that this oppression is localized to the north because that's where the battle is going to happen. So we're told a couple things here. First, Jabin is the king. He rules from Hazor. And Hazor is right up here. He has a general by the name of Sisera. And Sisera has iron chariots. He's taken it down to the chop shop and pimped out his wheels with iron rims. He has 900 of them. And Israel is freaked out because he has chariots. Now remember, judges already shown the flawed thinking in this. They could not defeat the enemy because they had iron chariots. But at the same time, we've already known that that's totally possible because Jonathan, or sorry, Joshua defeated them in chapter 11 of the book of Joshua with iron chariots. And he also, Moses defeated the iron chariots with the Red Sea crossing. Now here's what's interesting. If you go to chapter 11 of Joshua, Hazor was the very city that Joshua conquered who had the iron chariots and he hamstrung the horses. Now Hazor has 900 iron chariots oppressing Israel, which means Israel has so fallen away from God, they have lost what Joshua conquered. They have undone what godly men before them accomplish. That's sad. It's not that we've stagnated or plateaued in our obedience to God. It's that they are now backsliding. And how depressing it is for people to accomplish great things and the next generation to lose it and undo it. That's what we're introduced to is now things are getting so bad that they're not just getting impressed, but they're losing things that they once had. Verse 4, Now Deborah, a prophetess, wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She would sit under the date palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the Ephraimite hill country. The Israelites would come up to her to have their disputes settled. Now notice it never says that Deborah is a judge. It never says that God called up to deliver. It says that the Israelites did evil. Yahweh handed them over. But it never says that they, and it says the Israelites cried out. But that next stage of God lifting up a deliverer is missing. Even though Deborah is most likely functioning like a judge, and we know she's functioning like a judge because it says that she was settling their disputes. She's handling their court cases. So Deborah is, is acting like a judge, but not a military function because she specifically hands the military function over to somebody else. But we're never told that anybody is a judge, even though we know she is a judicial judge, and Barak or Barak is going to act like a political military judge. They're never called that. 
and it's very important for you to understand that none of them are called. Deborah is introduced as sitting and judging. This is one of those other, like, don't read this like an American. Read this like a biblical interpreter from this time period. The author sets this up as if this is not a good thing that the woman is leading Israel. Now remember, God is not saying that women can't judge and be judges. God is not saying that a woman can't be a prophetess. Miriam was a prophetess. We learn of other prophetesses. Huldah, and later in the book of Kings, is a prophetess. They're in, and God sets them up. God is not saying that women are incapable of doing any of these things. God is not saying that women should not be doing these things. But what God made very clearly in the Bible, in Genesis with Adam, and then later in the law, was that men were supposed to be the leaders. Now, once again, I'm not saying that a woman cannot be president or of a company or the nation or that kind of stuff, because we are not the chosen nation of God under the law. And this is a way bigger thing that it takes longer to develop. But I really, truly believe that one of the arguments that Paul is making in Romans is that not only are we not under the law, but a lot of those things are dissolved. The fact that men are supposed to lead and women are supposed to follow, that kind of stuff has been dissolved because all are equal in Christ. We're a new community of people, that kind of stuff. Now, that's a whole bigger discussion, and I'm not going to go there. And I'm not going to talk about the politics and the feminism today. But what I do want to make clear is God has made it very clear that women are capable. He wants to use women. He made Eve a queen along with Adam. He has gifted women in lots of ways. In many ways are gifted to do better things than the men can in certain areas. But he has clearly established that the men were to be the ultimate leaders over his chosen nation. This is not the rule for all people in all areas, but for his chosen people. This is reinforced by several things. One, never, ever, ever, and now anywhere in the Bible do we see a female leading, except for right here. If God really intended females to be the ultimate leaders over Israel, then we would see that happening a lot more. Second, the author intentionally goes out of its way to grammatically re, um, tell you in an awkward way. It doesn't say, it doesn't read like everything. It says, Deborah, a prophetess, a woman, the wife of Lapid, Lapidoth. Why does he specifically introduce the idea that she's a woman as a prophetess leading? The point is to emphasize that this is not what she's supposed to be doing. Now, is she supposed to be a judge? Yes. Is she supposed to be a prophetess? Yes. Is she supposed to be the only one? No. And then Deborah herself tells you when she mocks Barak, or Barak, sorry, and says, because you won't lead Israel like God has told you, the glory is going to go to a woman instead. And she uses that as a judgment against him. She, as the prophet of God, specifically says that the man was supposed to be the ultimate leader. And because he failed to be the leader, it's going to go to woman instead. And that's not a good thing. Now, I know that I've probably just thrown myself under the bus for a lot of people. But the reality is, this is very clear in the Bible. And, and, I'm not, and, and here's the thing. America and the church is really screwed up big time. The idea of God calling the males to be the leader 
but at the same time giving women positions, equality, and status in the church. For most people, we either don't care about male leadership or we just push the woman to the ground and said, you can teach the little kids. And that's not what God meant by leadership of males. He has gifted women in amazing many ways. And the Bible makes it very clear that women are allowed to do a lot of things in the church that men are do. It's just that man has been called to the ultimate headship position. It doesn't mean that a woman can't have authority. It doesn't mean that men and women can't do ministry. It just means that they're not allowed to have the ultimate headship. And it only speaks within the spiritual life of the church. And I know that's even disputed, but there's just too many times in the Bible where God uses women in amazing, powerful positions of leadership and that kind of stuff. But yet what you don't see in the First Testament is her being the ultimate king. And that's the reality. And so this, now, is this meant to be a slam against Deborah? Heck no. If anything, the whole point of this is to be a slam against the men. The fact that the men have failed so miserably that God is putting the women into the ultimate leader position. If anything, this praises the women. It lifts Deborah up that in all the nation, God can't find a godly man to lead his people, and he's using Deborah. Deborah, who is a godly woman. Deborah, who would have been a prophet even if there were men. Deborah, who would have been a judge even if there were other men. If there were tons of godly men leading Israel in godly ways, she would still be a judge. She would still be a prophetess. God would still be using her in amazing ways. But she wouldn't be the ultimate head. She wouldn't be the ultimate head. And that's pretty sad that you can't find any godly men in Israel at this time to lead Israel. This is what gets really interesting. As in verse 6, it says, She summoned Barak, son of Abinom, from Kadesh Naphtalia. And she said to him, Is it not true that Yahweh, God of Israel, is commanding you, Go march to Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men from Naphtalia and Zebulon? She's sitting down here in Ramah. And the enemy is all the way up here in Naphtalia. Barak is up here in Naphtalia. And Deborah calls him, sends messengers up here. This would be at least a four-day journey up to the north. It would be at least four-day journey up to the north. So you send messengers up four days, and then it takes them at least four days to come back down to give him a message that you should go back up to the north four days and defeat the enemy up there. Now this says two things. And she says, has, has not God called you? There's no godly person up there who's listening to the voice of God to tell him that message. The implication is Deborah might be the only godly person hearing the voice of God at this point. That's sad. And that's not a woman thing. That's a, that's a sad, that if there's only one person in America who's still hearing the voice of God. The implication, too, is Barak might already know this. And then he has to be brought all the way down the north, south, and Deborah has to kick him in the butt and say, do what you're supposed to be doing. Come on. He's obviously a military leader because he already has an army. He comes down with servants. He's already seen as a judge because the people are following him. So basically the implication is he's not doing what he's supposed to up there. And there's nobody up there who can hear the voice of God to tell Barak to do what he's supposed to be doing. God speaks to Deborah 
and Deborah in great obedience to Yahweh without hesitation immediately functions the way that she's supposed to and calls Barak down, commands him to do it, to go back up there and defeat the enemy. Is it not true that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is commanding you, go march against Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men from Natali and Zebulun. I will bring Sisera the general, Jabin's army, to you in the Kishon River, along with its chariots and huge army. I will hand them over to you. She has given him a guarantee from Yahweh that he's going to win. You need to understand something. This means as long as Barak is fighting the enemy, he's invincible. He is guaranteed victory. He's guaranteed invincibility until at least the enemy is defeated. Upon the word of God spoken through the prophet. And we know that Barak is totally failing by the first thing that comes out of his mouth. Remember, dialogue is important. And dialogue very rarely shows up. And the first words out of his mouth is, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I will not go. First of all, don't you dare say that to God. God, I'm only going to do this if you give me this. You do not give God ultimatums. You have to understand the way prophets work. The prophet is the representation of God. And when the prophet is speaking, he or she is God at that moment. And God made it very clear to even Moses. He says, Moses, you are to be my prophet. I'm going to send to Egypt, and you will be as God to Pharaoh. And we see the prophets when they say, thus saith the Lord. And then Isaiah starts saying, I delivered you from Egypt. And you're like, no, he didn't. But in that moment, he is God. And he functions as God. When we get to the prophets, God is going to make it very clear that it is very hard to distinguish the prophet and God from each other until they mess up. Deborah is speaking the word of God to him, and he speaks back to God. I will only go, God, if you send Deborah with me. So he's giving God an ultimatum, which is really jacked up, but he's also doing what? He's refusing to obey. And he's saying that Yahweh is not enough. He needs Deborah. Now, in the ancient Near East, it was not uncommon. They see, the gods didn't like you. The gods didn't want to be with you. And the gods worked through talismans. It was not uncommon for the prophets. They viewed the prophets as maybe actually having the spirit of the gods in them. And if you had the prophet with you, it was like a magical lucky charm. You didn't want to go into battle without your prophet. Like We're going to see this in the book of Samuel. They're going to like, oh, we've been defeated by the enemy. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant in. It's a lucky charm. It's like a shield that will automatically give us victory. And then they lose. They viewed things like this as magical charms. And if they had it with them, then they had the God with them and they could not fail. This shows that Barak is thinking like a pagan. It may not be exactly that he's saying that I only go because of Deborah, and I value Deborah more than Yahweh. But he wants some guarantee that Yahweh is with him. He wants a physical, magical, lucky charm of God with him. But ultimately, and he is saying that God is not enough. The word of God is not enough. He needs something more than just the word of God. And this is very important to understand, because God gave him his word, and that should have been enough. Because he's given him tons of stories. He showed that it was enough when he gave it to Moses. And Moses took the word of God and went out and defeated an enemy. Joshua took the word of God and went out and defeated enemies. Abraham took the word of God and went out into the land. He has shown all throughout the Bible that the word of God is enough. And Barak is saying, I need more than just the word of God. This is a total lack of faith. So he's 
giving God an ultimatum. He's not trusting him. He needs more of a guarantee than just God's word. And he's hesitating. Now, the irony here is Barak means lightning flash. (laughs) And he's not acting like a lightning flash. And this shows you that even Deborah does not like this because she says, verse 9, I will indeed go with you, but you will not gain the glory on the expedition that you're undertaking, for Yahweh will turn Sisera over to a woman. Deborah got up and went to Barak with Barak to Kadesh. So she says, okay, I will go with you. God has granted that. But because of the way that you're going about things, because God is not enough for you, because you need a woman, then you're going to be forever shamed in the great songs of heroes of a woman getting the glory over you. And the fact that Deborah sees it as a judgment, a woman becoming the head over Barak, shows that even the female prophet of God sees the woman as being the ultimate head as not a good thing. She sees it as a form of judgment. This should read not as an ant. Don't I mean the feminists go extreme and say this is anti-woman? No, it's not. Look at Deborah. Look at the way that God is treating her. The way He's lifting her up. The power that He's giving her. The responsibility. Look at the godliness that she has. This is not an anti-woman. This is anti-man. The point is that this is God's judgment upon them. That the women are now being used in the way that they can always be used, but now is the ultimate way. Verse ten. Barak summoned men from Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men followed him. Deborah went up with him as well, and now Heber, the Canaanite, had moved away from the Canaanites, the descendants of Hobab, Moab's father-in-law. He lived near the great tree of Zamnin, near Kadesh. You're like, okay, wait a minute, that's a weird interruption. So we're moving, we're ready to fight. We're, oh, meanwhile, over here, there's this Canaanite who moved his tent from the other Canaanites over to Haggath, and okay, let's go back over the battle. You've seen this in movies where all of a sudden you just randomly shift to something that has nothing to do with the story and then that kicks back in later. And you realize, oh, that is so crucial to the conclusion of the story. Who is Heber the Canaanite? Remember, Canaanites, we talked about this last week, but the Canaanites were a clan within the Midianites. When Moses fled Egypt and went down to the Arabia, he met up with a Midianite clan, the Canaanites of Raul or Jethro, and he ended up marrying his daughter. So these are the relatives of Moses because Jethro and his clan, the Canaanites, took care of Moses and the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. And Jethro was a very godly man. And I talked about this before. Jethro probably was the guy who told and taught Moses about Yahweh. Because remember, Midian is a descendant of Abraham through his wife, Keturah, that God said, because you treated my people well, I will give you a plot of land in the promised land. And God honored that. And so the Canaanites are living there. Now, the fact that Heber intentionally moves his tent away from all the other Canaanites makes you wonder, why is he doing this? And moving your tents away from everybody else suggests that you're changing your allegiance. And so the question is, why is a Canaanite leaving the other Canaanites significant to the story? Come back to that. Verse 12. 
When Sisera heard that Barak, son of Abinon, had gone up to Mount Tabor, he ordered all of his, chari- um, all of his chariots, 900 chariots with iron rim wheels, and all the troops he had with them to go from Hereshith Hagiam to the river Kishon. Deborah said to Barak, Spring to action, for this is the day that Yahweh is handing Sisera over to you. Has Yahweh not taken the lead? So now Deborah says, basically, lightning flash, strike. If you read in the Hebrew, that's how it reads. So lightning flash, act like a lightning flash and strike. This is your chance. This time, Barak actually does strike without hesitation. But this is not like a pat on the back to him. This is, that's what you should have done earlier, you ding dong. He goes out and strikes. Barak Barak quickly went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And Yahweh routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all of his army with the edge of the sword. Sisera jumped out off of his chariot and ran away. But Barak chased the chariots and the army all the way to Harishoth, Hagiom. Sisera's whole army died by the edge of the sword. Not even one survived. Notice that when Barak finally struck, it said God routed the enemy. Barak didn't have to do anything. All God wanted Barak to do was just obey and show up. And if he would have just obeyed and showed up, God was going to defeat the enemy for him. This word routed the enemy shows up one other time previous before that, and that's when God routed the Egyptians with the Red Sea and defeated the Iron Chariots. And so God is intentionally taking back to that. You have the Kishon River, which is going to be a key factor in the next chapter. You have the word routed being used. You have the Iron Chariots being used. You're supposed to see this as another exodus. And God is doing all the conquering. Barak doesn't have to do anything. He just had to show up in faith and God would have done the rest, but he couldn't even do that. And so this shows how he has failed so miserably. Now the whole army is defeated except for Sisera. He gets away. And remember, God, it's important to get Sisera for two reasons. One, God commanded everybody to be killed and it didn't turn out well when they refused to kill Adonai Bezik in the previous chapters. And two, we know that even though the whole army is dead, the general is the key. Like a coach, a really good coach can take any team and turn them into a great force like Hoosiers. Okay? And, and we know that when the Habsburgs and the Austrian Empire were clobbering the French in the 1700s, Napoleon rose up as a great general. And he clobbered the Habsburgs and the Austrians and just decimated them. Now, when he found out his wife was having an affair, he gave up and he lost his muse. He wrote in his, he called her the bright morning star and he gave up on life and he just quit. The Habsburgs and the Austrians completely conquered him. They decimated the French army and they took Napoleon and imprisoned him on an island of Bitmos, I think that's what it was called. And he stayed there. His army was dead, wiped out, defeated, everything. The French were depressed, and they realized it was her fault that he gave up and lost, so they forced her to write letters of repentance to him, and he believed it, and he escaped off the island, raised up another army, trained them, and defeated the Habsburgs and the Austrians again. His famous defeat at Waterloo was because he found out that she was lying and deceiving him, and he gave up again, and they recaptured and took him to the island. The point is that it was a completely different army, yet the same general was able to raise them up and turn them into a force to be reckoned with when he had the umption to do it. And so Cicero's gotten away, 
And just like they conquered the city of Luz, but let one guy go away and rebuild it, they need to conquer Sisera as well, or they might be facing that army again. And so they chase him down. They chase him down to get him. Now Sisera ran away foot the tent of Jael, wife of Heber the Kenite. So this is Heber's wife. He's not important to the story, but his wife is. So Jael is a tent wife. And she is home and he is not. And so he flees to her. Now, you know now that Heber has moved his tents specifically away from the other Canaanites to the army and the household of Sisera. So Heber is loyal to Jabin and even says that, that Heber was loyal to Jabin. Sisera comes in and he's running and Jael sees him and says, come in, my lord, come in, I'll hide you. Men were not allowed in the tent of a woman, ever. Unless you were the husband, the father, or the brother, you were never allowed in the woman's tent. So that means Sisera going into her tent means is a very good hiding place. Not very likely that men would risk the judgment of the clan to hide in the tent of a woman. So Jael summons her and she said to him, stop. Rest, my lord. Stop and rest with me. Don't be afraid. So Sisera stopped to rest in her tent, and she put a blanket on him, and he said to her, Give me a little water to drink, because I am thirsty. She opened a goat skin container of milk and gave him some milk to drink, and she covered him up again. He says, Hey, if anybody comes to the tent, you look out and you watch. If they say, Is there a man in here? You say no. Now notice, he comes in. She is like a mother, like a good mother with a boy that's been defeated. She invites him in, and she says, I'll take care of you. Just lie down here. She covers him with a blanket. Can you imagine this picture? This is a grown general being covered with a blanket of this, this tent wife. She covers him with a blanket, and she says, I'm thirsty, and she breaks out the milk. Now, in the ancient world, this is like saying, I'm thirsty, and somebody says, here's my 300 bottle of wine. She is rolling out the red carpet for him and taking care of him. She stands at the door and lets him sleep and takes care of him. And then it says, why he's sleeping. Then Jael, verse 21, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg in one hand and a hammer in the other, and she crept up to her room and she temple. This is like a nine-inch stake. In Israel, they have about three to six inches of soil, and everything else is bedrock. And it was the job of the women to set up tents, which means this women, they slammed these stakes in for every part of the tent every single time they move, which means we've got major like tennis arm going on here. <laughs> Women were way stronger than what a lot of people think from the ancient world. She's capable of doing this. So he's sleeping on the floor and she puts the stake on his temple and drives this thing through his head and nails him to the ground so he wakes up dead. <laughs> she is the unconventional person with an unconventional weapon. And you see, if you've read this for the first time ever, you would think that Deborah meant that she was going to get the glory. Because when you're reading this thing, oh, this is Deborah. In fact, a lot of my students who do not obey me and they don't read the chapter before they come in, they're like, it's Deborah. And I'm like, I know you didn't read. Marking off points. Okay, so the reality is you think it's going to be Deborah the first time you read, but you realize it's J.L. And it's J.L. She's not a great leader in the community. 
She's not a military leader. She's not a prophetess. She's an everyday normal woman, which there's nothing wrong with that because it's like most people in the world. And she is an unlikely person with an unconventional weapon. Now, what's interesting is that you're supposed to see the connections here. The Hebrew word that is used to say that Ehud plunged his sword into Eglon is the same word used to say that she drove the stake into his head. Just like Shamgar, who was an unconventional person with an unconventional weapon, you were to see her like an Ehud slash Shamgar figure. And God uses an everyday, normal, unknown, largely in world history kind of woman to bring the victory. Barak, the great general, the great leader, the one who's been established for a long time, doesn't get anything. And yet this woman that nobody knows about is because God can use anyone. There. Now Barak was chasing Sisera and Jael went out to welcome him. And she said, come on in. He went into the tent, and there he saw Sisera sprawled out dead with a tent peg in his temple. That's the humiliation. The great general comes in to get the victory over the great general, and the unknown woman has her. And he doesn't get the glory. She does. And God lifts her up above all the other men in Israel. That day God humiliated King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites, and Israel's power continued to overwhelm King Jabin of Canaan until the day that, until they did away with him. 